Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Tomorrow is my birthday, my dear listeners, and it would be marvelous if, as a present, you check out our two sponsors this week using my offer codes, Vistaprint and HelloFresh. It'll give them a reason to keep coming back as sponsors, and that would be the gift that keeps on giving. Let's just jump into this week's episode, shall we? First up, we have a story from friend of the show, Wellington Hutzler. If you haven't checked out his story in episode 7, then I suggest you cue that up to play immediately after this one. For us tonight, Wellington has us ask ourselves, what would you do if you awoke to a stranger in your room? Do you ever wake up and get the uncomfortable feeling that you're being watched? I've had that ever since I was a child. I would wake up sometimes in a panic, get that specific feeling, look around the room to see I'm alone, and then turn over back to sleep. It was an entire process for years until the night that it was for real. I was nearing the end of my junior year in high school. I can't remember what dreams I was having, but it was something unpleasant. By that point, this process had become so typical that I didn't even think about it. I was a few seconds from falling back to sleep. That's when I heard his voice. I felt a sudden surge of adrenaline. Holy shit! I screamed. I was not prepared to hear someone in my room, to say the least. Despite my shock, I managed to retain myself enough to assess the situation. At that point in my life, I had already knocked my fair share of people onto their asses and I was ready to again. He was fairly skinny, not as muscular as me. He was sitting on the drawer right next to my bedroom door. I could only see his pants and boots from the streetlight outside coming through my window. He sounded older. His voice was very calm. There was an unsettling playfulness to it. You could hear his inner smile. At that moment, I felt I could get the upper hand in the situation. Get the fuck out of here right now, I screamed. My parents were at a friend's house out of town, and the phone had been taken out of my room after I spent too much time talking to Catherine Callahan. This was the best strategy I could think of. Trying to intimidate him, and if that doesn't work, maybe someone will hear it. It didn't, and no one did. The stranger chuckled for a moment, and then I saw the light shine off of something. It was a knife. I felt the color in my skin drop. It was too dark to see what it was, but I could see that the knife was stained with something. That was the moment where I knew I was definitely in trouble. I was so stunned that I could barely speak. My mind was racing to figure out who this was. I rummaged through my brain like a cluttered room to think about who I had pissed off recently. Was he one of the Romero brothers? I was fooling around with Joe's girlfriend and he wasn't pleased about it. Maybe it was Freddy Figaro? I knocked him out in front of a crowd of people for mugging a younger kid in my neighborhood. But then I thought to myself, no. Whoever this stranger is, he's too thin to be them. This is something else. What felt like an eternity inside my own head was merely a couple of seconds. The stranger continued. 
in my travels, I have found that when you look at something ordinary from a new perspective, you might find the quaintest of things. I had no idea what the hell this guy was going on about, and that only made me more nervous. What is your name? He asked. I paused while he patiently waited. Darius. Hmm. Darius. Fourth king of Persia. Are you a king? Darius? I didn't know what to say. Was this guy fucking with me? He just sat there in a silence and waited for me to answer him. Uh, not that I know of. The stranger laughed. He didn't seem angry. I thought about the possibility that I could use my charm to protect myself. That's okay, he said. I'm not royalty either, but we still... I was startled to see him quickly shift his body. Huh? Oh, sorry, doctor. I got distracted. <gasps> doctor? Was he talking to me? I was so confused that I couldn't help but let out. What? The stranger moved his focus back towards me. I wasn't talking to you. There was a brief silence where I tried to comprehend what he had said. He pointed towards a corner of the room that wasn't near either of us. I was talking to her. I looked over and only saw my bookcase that had my boxing and wrestling trophies on it. A chill ran through my blood as I realized there would be no charming or reasoning with this man. He was completely out to lunch. She's right, though. We do have business to attend to. He had the habit of making statements and then stopping to see how I reacted. I didn't know what to say to him. Like what? I asked. He said nothing. His boots thudded against the floor as he stood up and slowly walked toward me. He stepped into the light and then stopped. He definitely was thin, but I could tell he was once bulkier. It was clear that he hadn't been eating properly or taking care of himself. I couldn't decide if his clothes were dirtier than he was. Patches of his short, greasy black hair appeared to have fallen out. What I didn't expect to see were the large pair of sunglasses he was wearing. Did this guy always wear his sunglasses at night? What a douchebag. I thought about that popular song by Corey Hart that the radio stations have been playing lately. I quickly stopped thinking about Canadian pop stars and saw that the stranger was still standing there in silence, with a slight grin on his face that unnerved me. What are, you, what are you doing? I asked. He stood there, ten feet from my bed, for about five more seconds, and then he quickly bolted toward me. He held his knife against my throat and got in my face. My first instinct was to struggle, but I relaxed when my neck began to bleed. The smell of his breath and his dirty teeth was one of the most unpleasant odors I have ever encountered, and I briefly started gagging. Do you feel that? He asked. Yes. That's the feeling of your life in my hands. I want you to remember this whenever you think about doing something that isn't what I tell you to do. Now follow me. We're going to your attic. The stillness of my dark, empty house was 
an unsettling contrast as we quietly stepped through the hallway. The stranger made a point to glance at the family photos and artwork that was hung up around the house. It seemed to me that he may have been looking for things to steal, and I prayed that that was all he wanted. He could have everything in the house. I was accustomed to having nothing. When I was growing up, we had been incredibly poor. I must have eaten bologna sandwiches for three months straight in second grade. It was only in recent years that we finally climbed out of the hole when my dad got a better job. The stranger stopped to stare at a painting that had always given me the creeps. It showed a large cliff facing a dark abyss at the bottom, with a silhouette of a person standing at the top. Where did you get this? I looked at it and tried to remember. I looked at it and tried to remember. It was hard to keep track of all the weird art my parents had started buying when we became rich. I knew for a fact my dad had a painting of a naked woman hidden in his office. I think it was a gift from my mom's friend. The stranger continued to stare at it and said, It's derivative, and looked back at me with a disappointed face. I wasn't much of an art critic, so I just looked back at it again and shrugged. And suddenly... I felt a jolt of panic run throughout my body. I could see our cat Milo casually strolling down the hallway towards us. He had been in our family for four years after I fished him out of a dumpster when he was a kitten. Someone had dumped him there with his brothers and sisters, but only he survived from chewing on his siblings. Milo rubbed his orange and white fur against me like he always did but I was too afraid to touch him. He apprehensively looked up at the stranger. The stranger stared at Milo for a while and then knelt down, slowly lowering his hand that was holding the knife towards the cat. I saw the point of the blade getting closer, and I shouted, Don't! The stranger lightly rubbed his knuckle, against Milo's head and then started to pet him. I began to shake in anticipation for the worst. The stranger looked at me with a smile and said, What? I'm not a monster. He continued to pet Milo and then turned to face nothing. I had a cat like this when I was a child, doctor. Her name was Beatrice. I stared at the empty space he was talking to and felt a cold chill on the back of my neck. The stranger stood up and Milo walked away from us. All right, that's enough foolishness. I couldn't tell how long it had been since anyone went up to the attic. Clumps of dust and dirt fell from the ceiling as I lowered the ladder. The stranger made me climb first and told me to stand in a corner away from the ladder when we got up there. He looked amongst the various antiques, heirlooms, and clothes we had stowed away. Where is it, doctor? He began to move things around as if he was digging up buried treasure. I looked around the room while I stood there and listened to him. I could see my old tennis racket laying down a few feet from me. Mom tried forcing me to get into tennis when I was younger, but I had no interest in it because I couldn't hurt anyone. Maybe the racket could finally be put to some good use. I noticed the stranger drag something out of the mess of useless crap and saw him holding a large, locked chest that I had never seen before. He pulled a hairpin out of his pocket and put it in the lock. How do I do it? He asked, before he began to work on the chest. I must admit that I had my doubts initially when I watched him, but it was only mere seconds before the chest flew open. 
He intently searched through it for a moment before he pulled out a key that looked to be made of bone. What the hell is that? I asked. The stranger didn't pay me any notice. He continued to stare into the chest before he looked back at me and said, You should see this. I stood there, completely unprepared for what could be in the chest, and then slowly started walking. Each step I took sounded like a foreboding drumbeat. I had my eyes on the stranger while he kept that curious grin on his face. Then I finally reached the chest and glanced in. For a brief second, I stared at all the miscellaneous things in there and didn't know what I should be looking at. And then I saw it. Inside the chest was a skull of a human being that was much smaller than me, along with a few bones. I gasped in horror and walked backwards, almost stumbling over something on the ground. I felt like I was choking. The stranger cackled. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> I think you and your family need to have a talk. He continued to laugh at me while my face was frozen in shock. In that moment, I looked at him and wanted to do everything in my power to destroy that prick. He regained his composure and, in a very serious voice, asked, What do we do with him? The silence in that moment was so profound that I could nearly hear Milo eating from downstairs. I nervously looked throughout the attic, hoping I would see or hear whoever he was talking to and get an idea of what was going on. But I knew it was only the stranger and I up there. Yes, was the only word he had to say after his careful deliberation. He started to stare at me like he did back in the bedroom, and that's when I could feel my fight-or-flight response start to kick in. What are you doing? I asked him. He said nothing, and then he started stomping towards me. Without a moment's notice, I grabbed the tennis racket from the floor and swatted the knife out of his hand. The sound of that cold steel hitting the ground felt so satisfying. It was like hearing the bell at the start of all my boxing matches. I quickly and steadily laid my fists into his face. His sunglasses flew off into two pieces. My rage was so overwhelming that all I saw was red as I hit him back and forth. When I finally got my sight back, I became immediately paralyzed. The stranger was still standing. Bloodied and smiling, but that wasn't what stopped me. His eyes were gone. They had been for a while. We were so close I could see the scars inside of his dried sockets. My hands dropped to my side and I stared at him as if I were being hypnotized. Where? Where was all I could say? He grabbed me and screamed. You don't need them when you live in the darkness. He raised his eyebrows as if he was trying to bulge out the eyes he didn't have. The voice that had come out of his wide grinning mouth was much deeper than before. That loud, intense roar that shook the house almost seemed like couldn't even come from him. He hit me once and I fell to the floor. I was completely disoriented. I hadn't been hit that hard since I fought Calvin Jones in the sixth grade. 
His strength was incredible. He grabbed me by my shirt while I lay on my back, lifted me up, and slammed me back into the ground a few times. The back of my head bounced like a ball. My vision was getting blurry. But I could see the stranger grab his knife and walk back to me. I tried to fight, but all I could say was... Stop. He took his knife and cut open the front of my shirt. Then he started to carefully and meticulously carve into my chest. The pain was so intense, it felt like he was burning me with a hot poker. It was the longest few minutes of my life. Eventually, he stopped, looked down at his handiwork, and said, I want you to tell them. He grabbed my head and got closer to me. Tell all of them that if they want it back, they can come and take it. He stood up and walked out. I sat there completely speechless sorting through all the different thoughts and memories which were racing in my head and trying to hold on to consciousness. I looked at my chest and saw the stranger had branded me with some weird symbol that looked like a half moon with lines and dots going through it. I never heard him leave the house, but after a while I got up and stumbled through the house, holding on to my bleeding chest. I walked all the way to my kitchen when my head started spinning again and I began to black out. I woke up completely lost and not sure how much time had passed before I noticed I was in the hospital. My chest was covered in bandages. I looked at the daylight outside and finally had a warm feeling of security. I pushed the button to call the nurse, and soon a short, older woman with glasses walked into my room. Oh, you're awake! You've been sleeping here for about ten hours. What happened? You tell me. A police officer found you passed out in the middle of the street at night, bleeding like a stuck pig. I quietly turned away from her and looked out the window. Hey, if you don't want to talk right now, that's okay. Just get some rest. We contacted your parents. My heart sunk into my stomach. I hadn't even thought about my parents. I interrupted her with, You have? She nodded her head. Yup. They're on their way back to town. They'd really like to see you. I anxiously turned away from her again and thought about what I was going to tell them. The dread I had felt from the night before amplified, and I wondered if this was the ending of my waking nightmare, or just the beginning. The clouds rolled over the sun, and I could see the outside world getting progressively darker. This next story is by D. Calhoun. Dee is a published author, and you can purchase Dee's book, Go to the Devil, on Amazon.com. Get ready to feel a little discombobulated. I present to you, The Room. How on earth did I get into this dreary little room? I don't remember coming here. To be honest, I can't remember anything. I just opened my eyes and found myself here. Uh, it is dusty and cobwebby in here. I sat down on a dry rotted old sofa and a cloud of dust erupted from it. I wheezed and coughed 
and dust got into my hair and eyes. My white sundress that I love so much is now filthy. There's just enough light in here to see that, and I'm not at all happy about it. I just tried the door, but it seems to be locked from the other side. It's funny, but you would think I would panic at this, but I didn't. Curiosity has taken over. A desire to figure out just what's going on here. Wow. I sure hope I don't end up like that cat. You know which cat I mean. The one that was curious. Curiosity killed the... Oh, never mind. It's also very noisy here. There are voices, whirring, mechanical grinding, general racket. It's just a mishmash of sounds. Nothing is discernible. You can hear the voices, but can't tell what they're saying. All types of voices, too. In many different pitches and registers. I hear rushes of wind splashing of water. It makes no sense. Sometimes one particular element of sound will override the others and almost become soothing. But then something else pipes up and ruins it. This could be quite maddening if subjected to it for any length of time. There are photos covering the walls, completely chaotic in their arrangement. Some are framed and neatly hung, but others are taped up or thumbtacked. Some are even just tucked into the edges of other photos. They're distressing because they're haphazardly arranged, with no rhyme or reason. Someone who is OCD would have a fit if they looked at this. What's worse, though, is that all of the photos are extremely blurry. In some, you can make out shapes and can recognize that it's a man or a woman or a child, but some are too blurry even for that. It makes my head hurt to look at them. Also, I was in no way exaggerating when I said the walls were covered in them. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of photos hung in here. There isn't a bare spot left for any more. The door is still locked. I just realized that there's no toilet in here. But that doesn't even upset me. Somehow I feel like a restroom isn't needed here. I don't feel even the slightest urge to go. I also don't feel any pangs of hunger either. What a strange place this is. And how strange to be trapped in it and not feel worried. At least not yet. Some windows just opened, and now the room is flooded with light. Weirder and weirder, as I know there were no windows there before. Where did the photos go that were there where the windows now are? And for that matter, where was the previous light coming from? It wasn't much light, but it had to have come. From someplace, right? Okay. I'm starting to get a little unnerved here. Plus, the sounds are getting even louder and more irritating. When I look out the windows, I have to shield my eyes. The light is so bright, but it's a brightness spotlighting a void. 
Just a field of endless white nothingness as far as I can see. It almost looks like a mist. But the swirling is different. When mist swirls, you can sense that something is pushing it and making it move, like wind or another disturbance. This swirling is undulating and maddening as everything else in here. It's making my head ache. I had to look away from the windows and that nauseating light. It wasn't a clean white light, but it was a sickly kind of glow. Nauseating isn't quite the right description, though, as that would indicate something digestive. And like I said earlier, I seem to have no want or need for anything like that. We'll just say that the yellow light is sickening. That should cover it. Now that I can see the room in full light, I can see the total shambles it's in. Moldy rags strewn across the floor. Broken toys piled on and behind the broken furnishings. And even more photos that at some point fell from the walls but were never picked up. Why would someone put up more photos and not pick up the ones that had fallen? The door is still locked. I noticed this time that I was a little more frantic when I tried to open it. I just picked up one of the fallen photos. This one is in a frame and looked at it. Blurry, just like all the others but I could see my reflection in the glass. My eyes have gone totally black. Not, not just my eyes themselves, but the flesh surrounding the eyes as well. I look like Alice Cooper, and now something in me has snapped. I believe the term for my scream is bloody murder. Well, no. That wasn't a good idea. <laughs> Not at all. It would seem that the sounds in here don't enjoy being challenged, and they've become louder to drown me out in case I decide to bloody murder again. No more of that. I'm too afraid now. I have to get out of here have to get out. I simply have to get out. The door is still locked. I draw back to pound it with my fists, but at the last moment I think of the sound it would make, and I catch myself. I must be quiet and still and try to wait until all this passes. Oh my god. I hope the windows remain open. The light is unbearable. Sickening. But to be back in that near darkness would be terrifying. I'm huddled down into a corner where I'll breathe deeply and try to be silent. The sounds are still too loud, but they seem to be waning just a tiny bit. What's this? I found a book on the floor, beneath the remains of a tricycle. I know that the last thing I should do is open the book and read it. Everything else in this room has been an exercise in lunacy, and I know this book will be no different. Just the idea of doing something normal like reading is the first comforting feeling I've had since finding myself here. So I can't resist it. There is a quiet comfort in words, a familiarity. So nice, 
it's almost a calm that has come over me. A realization. Oh, my Christ. I know where I am. This book is familiar because it contains my thoughts. The photos are the images of my hazy memories, dulled and unable to be fully recalled. The toys are my broken dreams. Oh my Christ, this is not a room at all. I am trapped inside of my own head. The noises are now deafening as they try in vain to drown out my bloody murder. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is the first alien story that's ever been submitted. I don't know about you, but the thought of aliens scares the ever-loving shit out of me. So if you're ever unable to sleep, staring at your closet, hoping it won't open, and cursing my name, just know I'm here in California having nightmares about being sucked into the tube thing from War of the Worlds that just turns you into a pink mist. I hope you'll forgive me, but I won't be doing the accent that was meant to accompany our next story. The scare and scare you to sleep is supposed to come from the stories, not my horrifying attempt at an Australian accent. Anyway, here is a story by Rob Jenkins. Last summer, I decided to drive across the Hay Plains from Adelaide to Sydney to visit friends. Usually I'd fly, but I needed some alone time to think and get my head right after a relationship breakup. I was feeling a bit more positive than I had for weeks and was looking forward to the trip. I booked two weeks holiday from work, packed my bags, and left work early on Friday so I could do a solid seven hours to get to Hay the halfway point between the two cities. Heading away from Adelaide on the highway, traffic starts to thin out once you've been driving an hour. By the second and third hour, the road was almost empty. I was sitting on the speed limit, thankful of the air conditioning in my car. Ahead of me was a truck and two other cars who were sitting on the speed limit too. No need to pass, I thought. Instead, I sat a safe distance behind them, letting them be the ones seeing any kangaroos or emus who might choose to cross the highway right in front of a truck or a car. My plan was to do almost seven hours of driving, then stay at one of the motels in the town of Hay for the night. I was looking forward to a relaxing night, eating takeaway and watching sport on TV in my hotel room. The hay plains are a boring part of the trip. Nothing but flat scenery, dry bushes, and hot. Again, I was thankful for the car being so new and making the trip bearable. 
I was listening to a bunch of podcasts I downloaded in advance. I wasn't sure about mobile phone signals once I got a few hours out of Adelaide, so I stocked up on a dozen or so podcasts before I left. I was listening to The Unexplained with Howard Hughes, and he was talking to someone about Roswell and the latest from those released videos. It got me thinking about a story I'd heard a few years back. A trucker had seen some weird stuff on the long, straight road toward Hay. Pretty creepy, as he'd been doing a long driving shift and was on the road at midnight. Thinking about it gave me the creeps, so I was thankful of the truck and the couple of cars heading the same way I was. We were a small convoy on our way across the empty plains. At just after 8.30 p.m., I cracked open a soft drink and opened my windows to wake me up a bit. The fresh air was still warm, but the combination of a Coke and the windows opened improved my concentration. Ahead, I saw some lights. They were truck lights, and getting closer, I made out a car, too, plus a minivan. All had slowed on the side of the road except the truck. That had stopped right on the road. I slowed and came to a stop behind the minivan. I got out to see what was wrong and saw no one in the van, nor the car. Weird. I walked past them toward the front of the truck and saw the drivers and passengers all standing on the road in front of the truck staring ahead. A few hundred yards ahead of us was a blue light. It appeared to be hovering about 100 or so feet from the ground. What the... I said out loud. The truck driver turned to me and said, Exactly. What the hell is that? A woman in her 30s turned to and said, We all just stopped. I have no idea what it is. It's a UFO, Mom, said a young teen girl next to her. There was another couple standing, too. They simply stared. We all did. It was something I couldn't explain apart from what the teen had said. A damn UFO out in the middle of nowhere. Why? I wondered. You hear stories like this, like the ones on podcasts, but you just never know what's true anymore and what's fake. What's been made up or doctored in Photoshop. But here we were, standing a few hundred yards from a glowing blue light, hovering over the road. It looked to be around the size of the width of the road, but doubled. Maybe 30 or so feet across? I couldn't see anything past it. Was there another group of people on the other side of it? Stopped on the road like us? Staring at it? Then it started to move. Slowly across the side of the road, and I could see that inside the blue glow was something solid. Like a metal object. Shaped like a disc, it moved out west over the plain. We all turned to watch it. I remembered my cell phone and felt for it in my pockets. Damn. I left it on the passenger seat. I've got one, said the mom with the teen. She showed me her mobile phone. I tried filming, but the phone went dead. Mine too. I turned and the other couple were looking at me. The guy who spoke showed me his phone. Blank. We watched it turn slightly, and then it was gone. Like it had opened a gap in the night sky and disappeared through it. We were still silent for a few minutes, getting our heads around what we'd just seen. The truck driver turned to us and said, Well, what the hell do you think that was? And why out here... There are only power lines and dust and a few ruse. None of us had an answer. We were all dealing with it and trying our best to process what we'd experienced. Mom, can we go? The teen asked. She looked like she was about to burst into tears. We all turned and looked at her and then the mother and then at each other. The mother looked back at us and said, Should we report this? Who do we tell? The police? 
Yeah, I think so, I said. There's got to be something like MUFON here. MUFON, said the truck driver. Yeah, it's a group in the U.S. that takes UFO reports and follows them up. But I don't know if they have someone in Australia. They definitely should talk to the police. We can stop at the next town since our phones aren't working. I was going to stay there tonight anyway. Plus, I think I need a drink after this. I smiled, but it wasn't very convincing. We spoke a bit longer, but then agreed to meet at Hay. The truck driver took the lead, and we all followed like some sort of frightened convoy. I was at the back of the group and repeatedly checked my rear vision mirror and was surprised that there was no other traffic. Nor was there any from the other direction. Thirty minutes later, our convoy rolled into town, and I was relieved there were people driving around and lights on in homes and the two gas stations we passed. The truck driver pulled over in the main street at a takeaway shop. He jumped out, and I wondered what he was doing. Grabbing food? He came out just as the rest of the group were getting out of their vehicles. Police station is two blocks up. We got back in our vehicles, and... That's when things got really weird. Suddenly, all the lights in town went off. Cars, shops, and even my phone went dead. One by one, we got out of our cars, and at once we started talking and asking what happened. The teen girl saw it first. Look, she said, and we all turned to see what she meant. There in the distance was that blue glow again. It was too far away to see the disc, but we knew it was there. Shit, said the truck driver. People from the takeaway shop came out to see what was going on. The shop owner was cursing the power outage, complaining about lost business until he too looked down the street into the distance. What in God's name is that? Everyone was looking now. The truck driver opened up his cab door and rubbaged in the front seat and came out with a torch. He turned it on. A lady came out of the takeaway shop with a torch, too. What's going on, hun? She said to the owner. He pointed, and she dropped the torch. Picking it back up, she looked around at us and said, What is that? More people had turned up. From other shops that had still been open. A small group from the Indian takeaway shop, plus some people from the bar across the road. People were talking, asking what it was. Why had the power gone out? The takeaway guy yelled out, Let's go to the police station. Almost all of us responded yes, and we started walking toward the station. We could see more torches up ahead where the police station was. Some were pointing at us. The takeaway guy yelled out, Rich, you there? Yep, Gav, you guys okay? Rich, I found out, was Sergeant Richard Dixon, and Gav was the shop owner. I also found out that some of the town people that knew the sergeant well called him Dick Dixon. Dixon had four officers outside with him. They were all holding torches. One had a shotgun. Anyone know what's going on? asked Dixon. We saw this out in the highway about half an hour ago, I said. The others in our group nodded and spoke up. It was just hovering on the road, then it just disappeared. It was the mother of the teen. The young couple spoke up almost in unison. Yeah, it was weird, just hovering, then gone. The other members of the crowd looked at us like we might know what's going on. Dixon asked, Did it make any noise or do anything else? Nope. Just hovered and vanished into the night, the truck driver answered. We continued watching it, and then Dixon said, I think it's moving. Looks like it's coming this way. What do we do? It was Gav, the shop owner. Dixon turned to his deputies, instructing them to get a shotgun each. Better be cautious, he said. I think we should move into the station. No one argued. We filed into the police station, keeping our eyes on the craft that was, indeed, moving toward us. 
Looking out the station's window, we could see the craft was closer now. Its blue glow lit up the main street, making weird shapes on the shop windows. We all stood quietly watching, but my mind was racing. What is this? Who are they? Where are they from? Why? Then there was a calm inside of me. I looked around, and the rest of the group also looked calmer. Even the teen girl. No one spoke. We all just looked. The craft was now very close to us, and now stopped. Just hovering outside. Still around 200 feet above the road. There was no sound. Then there were shapes in the glow on the road. Like thin, human-shaped beings. That reminded of the scene in Close Encounters. They were on the road, but difficult to make out much detail, as the brilliant blue glow was intense. Someone screamed, and the calmness was broken. People pushed toward the back of the station. Even the deputies were freaked out. Dixon, Gav, the truck driver, and I all stood there in front of everyone, looking out the window. Dixon shushed us all and we quieted, still watching out the window. The creatures must have heard the scream as they all at once looked toward the window. Dixon spoke. It's got a reflective finish on the windows, so they might not see us. Then one of the deputies fell to the floor, like he'd fainted. Same with a few others in our group, the teen girl too. People gathered around quickly, whispering to them, Are you okay? Wake up, and so on. I turned back to the window and nearly screamed myself. They were all at the window now, and I could see their features. They were the typical greys, described in many encounters I've listened to in podcasts. Big black eyes, tiny mouth shape, no nose. They just stared blankly at us. Then I went blank. Breathe, I thought. Keep breathing. My eyes opened and I was on the floor of a strange place. Hard tiles under me. Beside me were others all starting to stir also. I sat up and realized... I was still in the police station. The blue glow was gone. The grays too. Just silence and darkness. Then that all changed. Lights flicked on. I felt a vibration in my pocket and took out my iPhone, which was starting back up. We all sat up and started talking. What the f... Asked someone, but he was cut off before he could finish. Gab the shop owner swore as he got up. His forehead was bleeding where he'd bumped his head when he, too, must have fainted. Did we all faint? I wondered. Those that fainted first were still out. So others tended them and slowly they stirred, too. I went over to the mother with her teen daughter. She was saying her name to wake her up. Jasmine, wake up, honey. Wake up. The teen was stirring, then sat bolt upright and screamed long and loud. Her mother held her, trying to calm her. We all gathered around to help. Jasmine stopped and began crying. She rubbed the back of her neck and her mother put her hand there to see what was wrong. She gasped and turned to look at us. Dixon came over and looked. It was like a small red bump with a solid lump underneath it. A chip, I wondered to myself. I'd read and listened to a bunch of encounters where a chip is implanted into abductees' legs, neck, back. Perhaps her too. She needs to see a doctor and get that thing out, I said. Everyone turned to look at me. 
Then the deputy and the other people who had fainted started feeling around their necks. And all but one had a bump on their necks. The rest of us did the same. A flurry of checking our necks. What do these things do? What are they? asked Gavin's wife. Well, if they are what I've read about, they're implants, but I'm not sure what they do. Only those who'd fainted had them. Why? This question would stay with me for the next few weeks as I relived that night. After we had all recovered, we discovered that we were missing about 90 minutes of time. It was Gavin's wife who made the connection. Just before the power went out, she'd been watching a movie on television. Then, when the power came back on and she'd returned to the shop, she found out the movie had finished, and the channel she had been watching was now halfway through a sitcom. Those two weeks passed like a whirlwind. The military ended up coming to town the next day. Sergeant Dixon had contacted his supervisors and was surprised they didn't ridicule him, but told him none of us were to leave town until some people would arrive soon. It was the next day when we all met at Gavin's shop for breakfast that the military were there waiting. We discovered that the town had been cut off, so no one in or out until they deemed it okay. Questions were asked over and over. We had to give our stories. We were checked medically, and those with implants were taken to a military hospital for further treatment. The media, too, got in on the story, and soon enough, there were television crews and online and paper reporters trying to get into town, which the military allowed after we'd been interviewed. I skipped out as soon as I could. I didn't want any media attention, so first chance I got, I was in my car and heading to Sydney. Somehow, I avoided being interviewed, but over the next couple of weeks, people tried to contact me, waiting outside my apartment block, but I ignored them. It's now Friday afternoon, and I'm back at home. Work gave me an extra week off, so... I spent most of that extra week following the story online. I saw interviews with Gavin and the young couple I'd met when we were all stopped on the highway. The media was speculating what happened, but surprisingly, not many made fun of the situation. The videos leaked by the To The Stars group showing Air Force pilots tracking objects had changed the media landscape a lot. I'm sitting at my laptop typing this up, and now I've just noticed something really strange. Outside my fourth floor apartment window, I can see the road below. There's a black car parked, but it's kind of weird. It's old, like an American Cadillac or something. And while I'm watching two people get out of the car, I almost smile at the situation. Surely, no. A joke, right? The two people are all in black suits. Black hats like the 50s and bloody black sunglasses. It's gotta be a weird joke, right? They're headed across the road to the entrance to my apartment block. I'm locking the front door. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please check out our sponsors. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Come on over to my Patreon page. I have a special guided nightmare for patrons to check out. It's patreon.com slash scare you to sleep. Now, for this week's Patreon donors, my biggest thanks and eternal gratitude to James Cunningham, Mark Tricky, Julie Elizabeth, Mary Traficanti, and my beautiful mother, Rita Novak. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scare You to Sleep. 
You can also follow me on both at Shelby B. Scott. Join our Facebook page to interact with other listeners and some of the authors of the stories on the show. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Do you feel depressed and listless? Do you find social interactions exhausting or terrifying? Do you or someone you know have dark thoughts echo in your mind on a regular basis? Don't worry, we do too. I'm Chris. And I'm Lindsay, and we're the hosts of How Are You Holding Up? A podcast by the depressed, for the depressed. We aren't doctors, therapists, or anything of the sort. We just have depression and anxiety. And want to talk about it. So come and join us on a mental health adventure wherever you download your podcasts. And let us know. How How are are you you holding up? up?